turn to your Bibles now, please, and we will read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8, it's page 1164, if you're using one of the church Bibles. Second Corinthians chapter 8, many of the congregation have been here over the course of the weekend, and this is the fourth talk in our series of, of talks uh, throughout the church weekend. One of our earlier talks made reference to a collection that was being made in lots of different churches at this time in the first century, about roughly 2,000 years ago, for Christians in Jerusalem who were in need. And lots of different churches were collecting for them as an act of support and love and kindness to them. And that was all going to be gathered together and brought to these needy Uh, and troubled Christians in and around Jerusalem. That's what's being spoken about in this chapter. So you'll notice lots of references to giving and to generosity, to poverty, to all these kinds of themes. And that's the backdrop for what's being spoken about in chapter 8. So let's read this chapter together now. This is God's word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness 
As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honourable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, and who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Amen. Let's come back to God's word uh, to study it together now. We read 2 Corinthians 8 earlier and if you're able to have it open in front of you now it would be helpful for you to see it in your Bibles as we study it. Page 1164. Just inside the main entrance of Westminster Abbey in London is a large block of black marble with this inscription. Beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior unknown by name or rank. Brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land and buried here on Armistice Day, the 11th of November, 1920, in the presence of His Majesty King George IV, his ministers of state, the chiefs of his forces, and a vast concourse or gathering of the nation. Thus are commemorated the many multitudes who during the Great War of 1914 to 1918 gave the most that man can give life itself for God, for king and country, for loved ones, home and empire, for the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. It's known as the grave of the unknown warrior. Other countries have similar graves or monuments You may have been in Paris and France where beneath the Arc de Triomphe there is the tomb of the unknown soldier. And the intention is that they represent those who fought and died in the wars but whose names are not known. Probably all of us have seen war memorials that list the names of those who have fallen. Hundreds of names but there are hundreds and thousands in those wars whose bodies were never found or 
were beyond identification. And so their names can't be listed. But their bravery, their sacrifice can and must be remembered. And so in certain places there are these tombs or graves of unknown warriors. Tonight we complete our Ordinary Heroes series. This is the fourth and final sermon of our church weekend here in Clock Mills where we've been looking at people who are mentioned in Paul's letters but who are not that well known. They're not the big guns of the New Testament. Peter, Paul himself, the writer of of the passages we've been looking at, John, Luke, men like that. We've been looking at those who are the ordinary men and women, just like us, but who have been used by God. So tonight we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to focus more on the second half of the chapter, verses 16 to 24. And here we see two men who clearly have an important role in this letter and in the work that's going on here, but we're not even told their names. Our title tonight is The Unknown Warriors. And our aim tonight is to see what these men teach us about the many ordinary, non-famous, largely unknown men and women who are faithfully serving Jesus and his church. As always, it's important that we understand the background to this section. Here in chapters 8 and 9, Paul the man who's writing this book, and it's a letter to a church in a place called Corinth. That's why it's called Second Corinthians. Paul is telling this church about a special collection that's being lifted for Christians in Jerusalem and the surrounding area who are being persecuted, who are suffering, and in many cases are even starving. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we read of other churches who have already given. Verse 10 tells us that this church in Corinth had previously started collecting, but then they stopped. And so Paul wants them to get going again. To resume their collection and complete their collection. Verse 11 says, so now finish doing it. And in verse 16 onwards he tells us about three men. Who are bringing this letter. What we call 2 Corinthians. And they're bringing what has been collected so far. In Macedonia and in other places. And their responsibility is to add in the Corinthian contribution and take it on to Jerusalem. So that's, that's their job, really. That's what's required of these men. And even that starts to tell us something about the men who are involved in this project. Paul wants everything to be completely above board here. He sends three men... Because one man would almost certainly find the money a temptation. Two men 
may even be tempted. So he sends three later in the same letter, chapter 13, verse 1, about something completely different. Paul states that a charge against a fellow Christian is only to be brought on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so that seems a good principle and a good practice here that there are other witnesses. The whole process is up front and it's open how this offering is going to be handled. It's being spelt out here, the plans, very clearly in this letter so that there's nothing secretive and there's nothing shady about this offering and the delivery of it. So obviously we can work out from all of that that these three men are trustworthy, reliable, honest men. Verse 20 tells us that this is a generous gift. It's a big sum of money. Look at verse 20. Paul's explaining why he's going into all this detail. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. And the three men are Titus, who's mentioned in verse 16. He's a man who's mentioned quite a few times in our Bibles. He wouldn't qualify for our series this weekend of little people. He, he comes up quite a lot. He has a whole book of the Bible named after him, a letter that was sent to him by this same writer, Paul. Titus. And then look at verse 18. We have one unnamed brother. And then verse 22, another unnamed brother. So we're going to notice tonight three points that we can learn from these two unnamed men as we think about the unknown warriors in the church of Jesus Christ. Our first point focuses on the first man, the first unnamed man. Gospel excellence. Gospel excellence. Verses 16 and 17 speak about Titus, who's coming. And then we read this in verses 18 and 19. Look at it in your own Bibles, please. With him, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. And to show our goodwill. Now, the wording here in our English translations, we have to remember when Paul wrote this, he wasn't writing in our language. And the wording here is not totally helpful. Literally, Paul wrote about the brother who is the praise of the gospel through all the churches. Or the brother whose praise is in the gospel through all the churches. That doesn't easily make sense to us in English. So maybe we can see why our Bibles want to add in words like the preaching of the gospel. Or other Bibles say the gospel ministry or his service to the gospel. Some of you tonight might be reading from a King James version or a new King James version that says the brother... Verse 18, the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And I think that's a better translation of it. This one we're reading from tonight, the ESV, is excellent. 
But I think on this occasion, those translations maybe have it a bit better. The brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. What does that mean? Well, it seems to be describing a man whose life lives out and demonstrates the gospel. That's been the theme of chapter 8 so far. It begins in the first verse saying, You know all about God's grace, God's giving. And so, as the chapter goes on, it's saying, You, verse 7, should excel, should be rich in, should abound in generous giving yourselves as well. Living out what we have experienced, what we know. Verse 18 uses the word famous. It's speaking there of excellence. The brother whose excellence in the gospel is widely known. So that's why our first heading tonight is gospel excellent. This excellence. This is a man whose life lives out and demonstrates the good news that he knows and believes. It seems to include, as we read on through verses 19 and 20, the kind of idea we get in other parts of the Bible where it talks about someone being above reproach. Having such standout holiness that there's no scandal, no disgrace, no rumour attached. This man has such a good and godly reputation that when people in all the other churches hear that he is involved in collecting and transporting this offering, they'll have no doubts, no concerns whatsoever. They'll have no fear that there's anything dodgy or underhand taking place. This is a man who displays excellence in living out the good news that he believes And so it's actually more helpful for us not to put in words like preaching or teaching or ministry here for this man. That's what some of our Bible translations do, but Paul didn't put those words there. He's simply talking about someone who's excellent, who's praiseworthy, even famous in the gospel. For how he lives out what he believes, of course, gospel living includes speaking it. We can't be silent. Of course, gospel living includes serving others. Idleness wouldn't be described as excellence. But this man may not be a preacher, an elder, someone who has a position in the church. But everyone knows him because of how he lives. Gospel excellence. Excellence in gospel living, we might say, is our first heading. But what do I mean when I say the gospel? Well, let's go back a bit earlier in our chapter to verse 9. For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. Jesus was rich. 
But he left it all behind for people like us and became poor. He left behind the riches and glory that were rightfully his in heaven. And he came to this earth. He was born and he lived in humble, ordinary circumstances. He died in shame. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He was rich towards God. In perfect harmony and closeness and unity with his father. And for a time he became poor towards God. Forsaken. Rejected on the cross because he was carrying our sin. He was being punished for us. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He paid our debt so that we could have his credit. That's the gospel. Or we could express it in the words I read earlier from the unknown warrior's grave. Words that are truer of Jesus than of anyone else who's ever lived. He gave the most that man can give. Life itself for loved ones. For the sacred cause of justice. And the freedom of the world. And if we've received that freedom, it transforms our lives. The forgiveness that is lived out and displayed in our lives, the welcome, the grace, the kindness, the patience, the mercy, these should all be things we are showing excellence in. We are famous for, to use the language of these verses. Things we have a reputation for. Things that people think about. When they think of us, we too should be living lives of gospel excellence if we're Christians. So this first unnamed man shows us gospel excellence. The brother whose praise in the gospel is through all the churches. Our second point is gospel enthusiasm. Gospel enthusiasm. We know even less about the second man than the first unnamed man in this section. The great word that came to Paul's mind when he thought about this man was not the soundness of his faith or his upright life, although both of those are important. But it's the word earnest. Look at verse 22 please. And with them. So that's with Titus and the first man. With them we're sending our brother. Whom we have often tested. And found earnest. In many matters. But who is now more earnest. Than ever. Because of his great confidence in you. Earnest. One preacher says about this passage that earnestness is the quality of Christians who care. That's what it is to be earnest. The quality of Christians who care. This man is deeply feeling. He has been touched by the suffering of the starving Christians in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. He's been touched by the generosity of the Christians in the 
far-flung Gentile churches in providing for them. And now he is being sent to Corinth to complete the collection, to G them up a bit again after they'd started collecting but stopped to spur them on, to motivate the church there to resume and to complete their offering. It's far more likely that deep feelings in that congregation will be stirred up if the person in charge of it is someone who feels deeply and passionately about it himself. We know what that's like if we've heard someone speaking, not even in the church but in any context, and they're passionate about it. Maybe it's something we're not even that interested in, but you you get carried along with their enthusiasm, their passion, their depth of feeling. This man feels deeply. He cares about the church of Jesus Christ and the flock and their well-being. But he's more than just earnest, though being earnest is a very good thing. He's more than just earnest. Paul uses a word in his language for earnest. And I looked it up in four different dictionaries and all four of them used a whole variety of English words to try and explain and define and help us follow what's meant by this word earnest. Lots of different words, but one word used by all four of them. Eager. Eager. So that's why our second heading is gospel enthusiasm. Some Bibles say that he is zealous. That's a good word for it. That's part of it. He's earnest, he's eager, he's enthusiastic, he's zealous. And Paul doesn't use the word that was often used when someone was zealous. He picks a word here that talks about speed. Speed, how quickly you do something. And so the picture here is being painted of this second unnamed man. He's earnest, he's eager, he's enthusiastic. And because of that eager enthusiasm, there's a speed in getting things done. And this second man has proved himself over and over. Paul makes that very clear in verse 22. He says often, he says in many matters, and he says now more than ever. This eagerness, this speed of getting things done, this enthusiasm is an ongoing mark of this man. This gospel enthusiasm. And as we reach the end of this short series this weekend, here's something surely that all of us, if we're Christians, can do and show. Gospel enthusiasm. Just think how glad the church at Corinth would be to have a man like this coming. Just think what a positive impact it could have on them and their giving. Again, don't we know what it's like when enthusiasm is contagious? Unfortunately, so also are the opposites, grumbling and negativity. But enthusiasm is contagious. Do you bring enthusiasm to this church or to your own church, wherever you worship regularly? Remember, remember Paul 
doesn't just want to tell us that he's zealous. There was a word for zealous. But he picked a word that talks about the speed of getting things done. Doing things quickly. Are we quick to do what's asked of us in the church? Whether it's an individual who's asking us. Or something the elders ask of all of us. Something we hear God saying to us in the preaching. Are we quick to do it? Or do we put it off? Do we take ages to get round to it? Maybe never. All of us can do this. Enthusiasm. Gospel enthusiasm. Being enthusiastic in praying, in attending, in giving, in serving, in reaching out. And we can be earnest. Remember, earnestness is the quality of Christians who care. Are we Christians who care? Are we ever moved, even as we speak with each other? When we pray, is there ever emotion in our voices? Not a fake emotion, not a a prayer voice that you put on when you pray, but genuinely moved, stirred by the things that you're praying about. This second man, the second unnamed man, Shows gospel enthusiasm. Then we come to our final point. Looking at both of the unnamed men. Gospel anonymity. Gospel anonymity. And here to finish. We come to what's really been our big point tonight. We don't even know. The names of these men. That's quite helpful for me, having stumbled over some of the other names, the earlier parts of this weekend, particularly Onesiphorus, Tychicus, Epaphras. We don't even know the names of these men, never mind if we are saying it correctly or not. And I hope you notice tonight that I'm not wasting any time guessing who they might be. You can, if you want, buy books about Second Corinthians commentaries where very learned men will guess who these two unnamed individuals are. I'm afraid I'm a lot simpler than that and I go by the logic that if God wanted us to know, he would have told us their names. And more than that, I think there's a point in this for us in the fact that their names aren't recorded. Here in Second Corinthians 8, They are recorded. What they have done is specifically highlighted, but their names are not given. We don't know where they came from, what they did, how and where they died. Apart from these few verses in Scripture, we know nothing about these men. They are the unknown warriors, some of the unknown warriors of the New Testament. And just like that tomb that That soldier buried in Westminster Abbey. They represent countless others. Who have served faithfully. Who have fought hard. Who have died well. For the cause of the gospel. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And we today are indebted to Christians. Like these men. Millions. Across the globe and throughout the centuries, young and old, men and women, 
rich and poor, educated and uneducated, through whom God has expanded the true church of Jesus. We're indebted to them for even the very fact that we have heard the message of salvation. Countless thousands throughout the ages have passed it on, the message of good news, until one day someone told it to you and to me. God has deliberately placed these two unnamed men. I've just noticed that in my notes it says nameless men, but they are not nameless men. They are unnamed to us. God has placed them deliberately in Second Corinthians chapter 8 to make a point that there are multitudes like them. Think about it. The Holy Spirit could easily have prompted Paul to tell us their names. We've read some of the passages even this weekend where he lists lots of people that we barely know or don't know much at all about. The Holy Spirit could easily have told him to write their names here, but he didn't. All we're given is that there are two men. One of them is known for his excellence. One of them is known for his enthusiasm. However, the important point that I want us to notice as we finish is that these men are unnamed, but not unknown. They're unnamed, but not unknown. And that is true of us as well if we are Christians. None of us will have our names recorded on the pages of God's word. This book is complete now. There's nothing to be added to it. Probably none of us, I'm happy for you to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but probably none of us will have books written about us, movies made, statues built, buildings named after us. We are anonymous, probably, on the stage of world history. But gospel anonymity means that Even though we're unnamed, we are not unknown. If we're Christians, our names are known to Jesus Christ. They're written in the Lamb's book of life. If we're Christians, our labors are not ever in vain for him. And our efforts are done for him and seen by him. And that applies to us and to all the millions throughout the centuries. Those who died so that we can have what you just very casually maybe took in your hands tonight or look up on your phone. The word of God in our language. Think of a nine-year-old boy whose name we don't even know. In 1526 he was burnt at the stake for reading the Lord's Prayer in English which he wasn't allowed to do at that time in history. A nine-year-old boy. don't know his name. Think of the thousands each year currently dying for their faith in North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Libya. We don't know their names. But God does. Unknown warriors. 
all known to him. And heaven is ready to welcome them home. Look at verse 23, please, just to finish with. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, here are the two unnamed men again. They are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Who or what is the glory of Christ there? The messengers or the churches? I think it's most likely that Paul is saying there that the churches are the glory of Christ. What an incredible thought. Your church here in Clock Mills, my congregation, our congregation in North Edinburgh, the other churches represented here tonight, the church throughout Ireland, the church throughout Scotland and the British Isles, the church across the world, the church throughout history, the church of Jesus Christ, made up of normal people. Ordinary heroes. Like Tychicus, who we saw in our first talk. Outstandingly faithful in the very ordinary. Like Onesiphorus, who refreshed others. Like Epaphras, we saw this morning, wrestled in prayer. And like these unknowns and many other unknowns, The church of Jesus Christ is made up of ordinary folk. Unlikely heroes like you and me. And that church, the church, is called here the glory of Christ. Amen.